True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. I hope you're all doing well. I know a lot of you are in ISO, but a big shout out to those not only in the medical profession, but also all of those out there still working hard to keep things going in these trying times. I'm almost out of ISO. Tuesday, I'll be out, but knowing my luck, they'll lock down the place next week. I really, really need to get out and go for a walk around. So tonight is a case, in fact, it's another case I saw in Forensic Files while cooped up here in ISO. It's about Jeffrey Gordon, who really did think he was smarter than the cops, but would end up getting caught out by his own perversions. Now, my references tonight, that's from The Gazette, The Courier, The Des Moines Register, The Tennessean, The Detroit Free Press, the Livingston County Daily Press and Argus, the Orlando Sentinel. There's also something from prabook.com and another bit from the inquisitor.com. And of course, Forensic Files. Who's been watching Forensic Files on Netflix while they've been locked away? It's just really good. It just keeps going on and on. They're really short cases. It's great. Anyway, tonight... We go all the way back to 1986 to Flint, Michigan. Here, Margaret Eby, 55, lived in the gatehouse on the Applewood Estate at 1400 E. Kearsley Street. Now, if you live in the area, you probably know this this place. It's a big tourist attraction. Margaret Eby, Nee Fink, was born on February the 8th, 1931 in Detroit, Michigan, United States, she was daughter of Christian Gothiv, Goth Hilf and Martha Frieda. Now, her education. She was a student at Wheaton College, Illinois, 1947 to 1949. Bachelor of Arts at Wayne State University, 1955. Master of Arts at Wayne State University. In 19, that was in 1962. Doctor of Philosophy at University of Michigan, 1971. So, she's been to school quite a bit. Her career, she's got an amazing career. She was Professor of Music at University of Michigan Dearborn from 72 to 77. Department Chairman of Humanities, University of Michigan Dearborn, 75 to 77. Dean of College of Humanities and Fine Arts, University of Northern Iowa, Cedar Falls. That was 77 to 81. Provost Vice-Chancellor, University of Michigan, Flint, 1981-83. Special Assistant to Chancellor, University of Michigan, Flint from 83. President Flint Community Cultural Festivals from 1983. Consultant Evaluator at North, North Central Association Colleges Schools, Chicago from 1982 She's very busy. This is making me tired. She was director of Flint Institute Music, 1981 to 83. She was an amazing musician. 
Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra, 1971 to 81, uh, 79 to 81. Artistic Director, Fairlane Music Guild Dearborn, 1973 to 77. Piano and Harpsichord Recitalist at Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa. Well, her achievements, Margaret Fink Eby has been listed as a notable university administrator and musician by Marquis Who Who's Who. Membership, it keeps going on. Chairman at the University of Michigan Flint United Way, 1982. She was regent at Wartburg College, Waverley, Iowa since 1980 and member of the American Association of Higher Education. Now, she married Stuart Leon Eby, August 25th, 1950. She had four kids, Dale, Mark, Jonathan and Margaret. So... Late in the evening on November the 7th, 1986, Margaret returned to the gatehouse at Applewood Estate after a dinner party. Now, she had separated from her husband at the time. She was living alone. Two friends accompanied her to the gatehouse door and waited until she was safely inside before departing. The gatehouse is situated away from the main house where Ruth Rawlings Mott lived. Not to take anything away from Ruth's achievements, but she was married to the co-founder of General Motors, Charles Stewart Mott. The gatehouse was a two-storey building, which had previously housed staff such as the gardeners and such over the years. When Margaret didn't show up for an engagement with her friends on the 9th, they were worried and went to see her at around 4.30pm. They were shocked to find she'd been brutally murdered. Police arrived and found Margaret on her bed with her hands bound with twine. She'd been stabbed several times and her throat had been cut to nearly the point of decapitation. Although it wasn't reported at the time, she had been raped as well. There was no sign of forced entry, which indicated either Margaret knew her assailant or she hadn't locked the doors when she got home. Now, I don't think she left the doors unlocked because in January 1985, Margaret complained to Mrs. Ruth Mott, the owner, about break-ins she'd experienced at the gatehouse, including an incident on May the 23rd, 1985, during which Margaret's compact disc player and purse were stolen. Now, I didn't think I'd have to get to the stage where I'd have to tell people what a compact disc player was, but, oh God, I probably will one day. I think most people probably know what a compact disc player is at this point. Margaret requested that a security alarm system should be installed, but Ruth Mott just got new deadbolts fitted. That's it. No alarm system was installed. Now, if you see the size of the Applewood estate, the wealth of the owners, or the owner as Charles was dead at this stage, the installation of alarm system wouldn't have broken the bank. But some people are just tight as. Anyway, I reckon Margaret would have locked up the place for sure. Now, the forensic files said that the windows of the building didn't have curtains as well. This gatehouse is protected from prying eyes to a certain extent by all the shrubberies surrounding the property line. Now, investigators found very little evidence, but they had a semen sample and a partial fingerprint from one of the taps in Margaret's bathroom. No murder weapon was found. Now, back in the day, and this is 1986, the fingerprint database was not linked to other states and there was no match in the system. DNA was really in its infancy and was rarely used in Michigan at the time as it was extremely expensive as well. 
Margaret was well-liked in the community and had no enemies, and her estranged husband was cleared of any involvement in her murder. Sadly, with no leads and little evidence, the case went cold. Now we get to the 17th of February, 1991, where Northwest Airlines flight attendant 41-year-old Nancy Jean Ludwig was checking into the Airport Hilton Inn near the Detroit Metropolitan Airport. Nancy was married to Art Ludwig, who was a retired vice president and program director of the local TV station. They'd met when she'd worked as a secretary there. Nancy had always wanted to be a flight attendant, had been working her and had been working a dream job for Northwest Airlines since 1976. Her flight from Las Vegas got in at around 7:51 p.m. and from what I can see, she was an extra crew member or an add-on rather than with a common crew. So when she left the airport to go to her hotel room, she did with only one other crew member on a shuttle bus. The check-in procedure at the Hilton for flight crew was pretty relaxed. There were keys with names on them and a list of the flight crew to sign on at the front desk. Anyone could see who was in what room and who had already checked in. Not very secure, but that day they had 185 Northwest employees check into and out of that hotel, so I suppose it just became the way they did it. When Nancy didn't answer her automatic, automated wake-up calls and failed to make her morning flight out, she wasn't missed at first because she was an add-on and not with a common flight crew. Hotel staff would try to contact Nancy around midday and when they didn't get an answer, they opened the room and found Nancy, her leg hanging out from the blankets, and she was dead. When law enforcement officials arrived, they found the body of Nancy lying face down in a pool of blood. Bound and gagged, she appeared to have been dead for hours. And strangely, they found that all her belongings had vanished, including her burgundy luggage, her her clothes, the bin liner, and even her Northwest Airlines uniform. An autopsy report later confirmed that Nancy Jean Ludwig had been raped and her throat was cut. She'd suffered defensive wounds and it looked like she'd rigorously tried to fight her attacker off. There was no forced entry into the room, so Nancy may have known her killer. It looked like the killer spent a lot of time in the room. He'd showered, dressed, and when he left, he put the do not disturb sign on the door. There was a bloody towel in the bathroom, but no fingerprints. The fellow flight crew member she checked in with told police they'd noticed a strange guy on the airport shuttle on their way to the hotel. She said he had no luggage and sat next to Nancy, stared at her during the short trip to the hotel, so he was a little bit creepy. He got off at the hotel with them, and when they turned to get their luggage, he was gone. They then went into the hotel reception, picked up their keys, both went to the third floor where their rooms were. Nancy's room was around the hallway, out of sight of the other crew member's room. Nancy's room was 354 at the right at the end of that hallway. The flight attendant was able to give police a description of the man being white, dark brown hair, a weathered face, average build and maybe 45 years old. Another flight attendant had noticed a similar man in the hallway earlier that day and he'd run out down the fire stairs when she spotted him. Also, another witness noticed a man putting Northwest Airlines-type luggage 
you know, the type of flight the flight crew use, into the back of a late model 1978 to 80 Chevy Monte Carlo sedan. It was brown or bronze with a white number plate. Now, for the Aussies out there, a Monte Carlo is a car, not a bicky. The witnesses described the guy similarly as the other flight attendant had, but younger. Now, as Nancy's flight luggage was missing, police wanted to talk to this Monte Carlo guy. Now, there were 2,800 Monte Carlos registered in the area, so they had to track down every one of them to interview. They also had to find out everyone and anyone that had checked in and flown into the area that day and had checked out and left the area that day after the murders. Also, anyone who had access to the hotel, such as staff and maintenance workers, whatever. Now, this added up to 20,000 people they had to clear. Quite a lot when you only have rudimentary computers at your disposal. So, it wasn't just people coming in and out of that hotel. It was people coming in and out of the metro airport. So, you can imagine how many. 20,000? Yeah, probably more than that. 29-year-old flight attendant Pam Skinsdale said that there is a possibility of danger with the ads, and that's what Nancy was. She was an add-on because you have to be on top of things yourself. You're sort of not with a common crew. You're just by yourself often. Maybe with one other person might just be checking in with you, with you just as happened with Nancy. But they're sort of left to their own devices. Now, Doug Miller of Northwest Airlines, he did say because of the nature of our cruise scheduling, we're not always able to be dispatched. They're not always able to be dispatched in pairs. He said we wouldn't define that as a dangerous situation, but it's probably preferential to be with someone else. Well, yeah, of course, but, you know, looking back now, Art Ludwig used his connections in TV to publicise the case. There was a $50,000 and then an $80,000 reward on offer for information. However, the case went cold. DNA from the swab taken from Nancy didn't show up in the DNA database. Now, 10 years later, in 2002, luck would have it that the son of Margaret Eby saw the details of Nancy's murder on TV and contacted Art Lugwid, telling him that Nancy's murder was similar to his mother's murder 15 years before. Art contacted police and they were able to then do a DNA test on the semen sample taken from Margaret and matched it to the one taken from Nancy. So police knew it was the same person, but still the DNA didn't match anything in the nationwide database. They decided to look again at the evidence in the Margaret Eby case and they found the tap with the fingerprint. Now back in 1986 it was put through the Michigan fingerprint database and there was no match. But now they had a national database and they rang the, ran the fingerprint through it again. And guess what? They got a match. It was 39-year-old Vienna Township resident Jeffrey Wayne Gorton. Vienna Township in Michigan is just up the road from the Applewood Estate where Margaret Eby had, had been murdered. Gorton's fingerprints were in the database from serving time for assaults on women in Florida. He had a history of violence against women and his felony convictions in Florida involved physical assaults on women. One attack in 1983 in Florida, he ripped the undies off a woman and then ran off. This guy had a serious panty fe- fetish. He would steal women's undies all the time. 
He was arrested for disorderly conduct, for lifting and looking up a woman's skirt at Flint area at a Flint area drugstore. In order to prove Gorton was the killer, they needed to get a DNA sample. Police followed him to a diner where he was eating with his kids. When he finished, they were able to get a styrofoam cup he'd been using. Now, for people in the future, a styrofoam cup is this absolutely one-use cup made of styrofoam that will be with us, I guess, for 50,000 more years. Anyway, how dare I? However, it had a mixture of DNA when they tested this styrofoam cup. But the results showed that it was probably Gorton mixed in there and it was enough to get a search warrant for his house. Now, get this. Police arrested Gordon and a search of his house found over 800, 800 pairs of women's underwear. Now, these have been labelled with dates, places, and some had names on them. Now, there was also a video of him wearing the underwear, just like that pervert Russell Williams did. Now, I'm not kink-shaming, please. <laughs> not at all. I don't care what type of undies you want to wear, or even if you want to go around commando, that's up to you. But when they're stolen undies, and you get off on wearing them, well, that is perverted, especially when you rape and murder someone to get off on your fetish. They took a formal DNA sample, which was a match to the samples taken from Margaret and Nancy. When arrested, he tried to say that his semen was found in Margaret because he was having a sexual sexual relationship with her and that the real killer was someone known to him. He had worked at the Applewood Estate servicing the sprinkler system when he worked for his parents, who were Shirley and Lawrence Gorton. Their company was called Buckler Automatic Lawn Sprinkler Company. Now, while doing a six-monthly service near the gatehouse that Margaret lived, they used to turn the sprinklers on after winter and then turn them off before winter and they used to blow out the lines, he left the outside basement access doors unlocked. So he was able to then enter the building and wait for Margaret to come home. When her friends dropped her off and she went to her bedroom, he attacked her. He bound and gagged her, raped her, then stabbed her to death. He was then able to clean up, steal some of her underwear and leave. However, he left that partial print on her bathroom tap. With Nancy's murder, it looks like he either saw her at the airport or was loitering around the hotel, knowing that flight crews would be checking in. As I said before, their names were in the open for all to see on the front desk, including their room numbers. He seems to have been waiting in the stairwell for the flight attendant that was going to use room 354 because he was at the far end of the hallway, out of sight. When Nancy opened her room, he rushed out and forced his way into her doorway. He then attacked Nancy with a knife while she tried in vain to defend herself. She was ultimately overpowered, gagged, her wrists were bound with twine, which by the way, was used by Gordon as part of his job doing the sprinklers, he then raped and murdered her. He then took all her jewellery, her rings and earrings, he took them out of her ears. He took her luggage because he knew there'd be clothing items in there that would interest him. He then stripped her naked and took her uniform. He even took the bin liner, which he may have used to put his bloody clothes into. Now, Gorton raped Nancy's lifeless corpse again, and then he showered, got changed, 
put the do not disturb sign on the door and casually walked out of the hotel. He was seen putting the Northwest Airlines luggage into his Monte Carlo. And funny enough, he still had that car when police arrested him more than 10 years later. He would go to uh, to trial for Nancy's murder and plead not guilty. He would be found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In Margaret's case, he would plead not guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Now, one was for premeditated murder and one for murder while in commission of a felony. And he was also charged on a single count of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. Eventually, he would plead no contest to save his family the shame of a trial. Well, isn't that nice? Mr. Gordon. He was sentenced to 40 to 80 years in prison on September the 19th, 2002, and he'd be sentenced to life in prison on February the 13th, 2003. I know the justice system in the US, and basically everywhere, can be fucked up sometimes, but you guys really know how to lock people away for good. Now, a few things. How his wife didn't know about all the undies that he had stolen, there were bags and bags and boxes of them. I, I don't know, but I, and I don't want to put any of this on her. She and the family would be going through enough shit as it is, but, you know, sometimes you've got to notice what are all these boxes piling up in the garage. Anyway, Aunt Lugwood said that Gordon killed two people the day he killed his wife. He very much loved her, but he never gave up on getting justice for her, just like Margaret's son and family and the police They never gave up. They just had to wait for technology to catch up to this creep. And you know, Gordon, if he just kept his hands to himself, not being such a fuckwit, beating up women and stealing their undies, he probably would have gotten away with these two murders. So what do you reckon, Islanders? This guy was that guy next door with family and kids, just looked normal. But he had this dark side, stealing ladies' undies, panties and slips. Not just from their homes, but he would also attack them in the street for his fetish. He even murdered those two innocent women, nearly got away with it. 16 years it took for the justice system to send him on the karma bus. Boom, fuckalunga. So that's the end of the show, Islanders. Now look out for this video version of this case on YouTube. Plus, don't forget, I'm going to redo a few of my older episodes soon on there. As you know, True Crime Island is totally listener-supported, so you won't hear ads, just occasional promos for podcasts that I think you should check out. I do have Patreon and PayPal if you want to help out. To become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. And for PayPal, it's donate.truecrimeisland.com. If anyone finds they need to pause any of their patronage, as I said last week, no problem at all. Uh, I don't want anyone overstretching anything. The island will still be here each week or most weeks anyway. Now I have merch at my new shop on Redbubble. It is new, but I think it will be better in the end. I'm giving it a go. I'm in the process of uploading a few designs now. The logo's up there on quite a few products. It's a funny way to navigate it. But I'm sure you'll find all the products on there. The old shop's still up. That's at threadless.com, truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, anybody on Threadless stuff that's bought stuff, if you ever have any manufacturing fault in it or whatever, just let me know. Let them know. 
they will fix it all up. So I've had a few things go a bit funny and so have a couple of customers. They have got in touch with me and it's all been sorted out. Use hashtag Bombfuckalunga in your social media. You never know, one day it might trend. All the links of all this stuff, except for Redbubble, you're just going to have to find that on Google, is on my website, truecrimeisland.com. I will get a link up there, but, you know, I just... <laughs> I need to do something with that website. It's, it's a good website. It just does its job. Don't forget the YouTube channel as well. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, bagalanga.